you settle into a comfy spot. Grab the remote. On they come. The Olympics. We don't get them very often. But it's a good time to see the world's best doing their thing. But the first words out of the announcer's mouth is, It is so hot. Welcome to What Is It About the Weather? podcast where we explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelanek, and this week, as I play with a microphone set up, we're going to be talking about the Olympic weather in a bit more detail. But before I get there, I hope you've been having a good weather week. Mine's not been too bad. Some warm, some cold, but all in all, pretty reasonable. I actually had some days where for the middle of summer, I mean, I know Technically, it depends on which summer you're talking about, but, you know, relatively middle of summer. Was able to open some windows and enjoy some comfortable temperatures and don't often get a chance to do that. So I was grateful, particularly after the travels where I had some, I would say, warm weather. But again, summertime. Should expect that, right? And so should they in the Olympics, right? All right, we'll get to that. I wanted to take a moment, had a good conversation this week, caught up with a, a friend of mine who I worked with for many years, and he's embarking on a new adventure in his career, and I just want to wish James the best of luck. It was it was good to chat with you, and as always, I enjoy our conversations that always at some point also get into some weather topics that we find interesting, and uh, you know, he brought up something uh, related to overnight temperatures and may not mean much to you but in the context of things that he's working on that I've worked on in the past with him makes a lot of sense kind of like me talking about you know wet bulb temperatures and those sort of things but it points out that all of us folks who work in the weather world see things through you know a set of eyes and it's important that we do talk from time to time and that's one of the reasons I I do miss you know you can have a, a conference all you want virtually but it doesn't spark the same kind of conversations that you might have just hanging out with people. And I do think that's important. So hopefully we'll get to be doing more and more of that. Although with the rate things are going, who knows? Who knows? Any case, again, James, good luck. And speaking of like career type stuff, I saw a it's on LinkedIn, right? And I you know, I don't know about you, but we all get notifications for every social network we work with, whether it's Facebook, which, you know, I've kind of turned off in my world. Occasionally I still get some sort of notification from there, but I've essentially taken my profile out of there. But whether it's Instagram or even other focused ones like Strava where, you know, it's about athletics and and the social connection constantly, you know, all day, or even Twitter now, is trying to guess what I want to watch or see. And I'll, I'll tell you, Twitter, not doing a very good job. And actually, it's to the point where it's annoying. And, you know, you have to turn those features off because your guesses aren't even close. You think you understand me. You think you understand what I want. But no, nah, you're not doing a particularly good job, which might have something to do with why you continue to struggle. I like your platform. Still do. I still think it's one of the best for sharing pictures and and video and text all in a format that works. But, you know, if you maybe could guess better, you might have me a little more often. Any case, one that I had not until recently been getting barraged with notifications is LinkedIn. 
And I will tell you, that one's also a bit bizarre and annoying on, on, in some level. It's like, why am I getting notifications on LinkedIn for these certain types of things? I, I think of LinkedIn as a professional platform, a professional networking platform. And I realize that the goal with all these things is to make money and to, you know for the company to get something in return out of it. And actually, in some ways, their, their suggested stuff that they throw at me is meaningful but it's not necessarily what I really want, right? But every so often, and they keep trying different techniques. A lot of times it's notifications on my phone. For a while, I didn't even know I had, you know, it came pre-installed on my phone. I didn't even know I was logged into it there and I started getting notifications. But I got an email the other day. It had some summary things from my feed. And again, I'm kind of okay with that. It's like a once a week snapshot or even once a day and I could choose to ignore it or not, but I flipped through it. And what was interesting was not, you know, what their goal was. What was interesting is something that really irritated the heck out of me, okay? And it had to do with a forecast, and I'm going to not get into a soapbox episode because I could. I could lose a whole entire episode on something I saw put in LinkedIn without any context around it that was issued as a forecast. Now, I hope in all for all everybody involved that this forecast turns out to be credible it was a one month look right it's a look over the next month that it had to do with hurricanes because we're entering that season and i can't go through a news feed or any type of feed right now without hurricane this and hurricane that and tropical season kicks in and blah 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 blah, blah. okay so i wasn't surprised to see it there but the forecast itself annoyed me beyond that. And if if we get to the end of this, I'm, I'm going to wait until their forecast period ends. And then we will talk. Because as it stands right, I, I want to be proven wrong. As it stands right now, it's one of the, for a modern era forecast, it's horrible and what it did. All right. And I don't want to call the individual out and I won't even do it in the episode. I'll talk to it in broad things. And quite frankly, if you're not in my group on LinkedIn, the odds on you seeing it would have been hopefully slim. I hope this person doesn't have a lot of connections that saw this thing unless he proves to be right. And then, you know, I will promote him by name and I'll, I'll admit that I'm wrong, but we'll see. Any case, enough of me mildly soapboxing. Let's talk about the Olympics. I hope you've been watching. I've enjoyed it. Some surprises, some not surprises, some new sports that I had no idea would ever be in the Olympics. I, I'm not sure who decides what goes in the Olympics these days, but some of the stuff that's migrated from the X Games, I think it's really cool that it's there. Some other stuff I look at and go, why is that even in the Olympics? Right? But there's probably a good reason, and somebody somewhere makes a decision. But I kept hearing about the heat. Kind of constantly, maybe not that first week, but certainly the second couple of weeks, you know, and I, and I don't even remember the timeline of the Olympics. I know most of it's captured in two weeks, but you know, you've got some stuff that preludes. So most of the prelude time and those early qualifications thing, I wasn't hearing about it, maybe because there just wasn't many sports going on, but it still seemed like the first couple of days of coverage wasn't hearing about the heat. But let's say the last 10 days, it had gotten to every time the com commentators were coming on, they were talking about the heat. Now, it could have also been that some of the things moved outside because early on, you know, there were things like gymnastics and swimming and all those take place in an environmentally controlled situation. But as we moved more into the things that were track and field, right, or even things like equestrian, but like I mentioned, some of those X game things, um, but the canoeing and the rowing and all these other things that moved outside, I kept hearing more and more about the heat. 
And I also kind of kept hearing these questions or seeing these questions about why are the Olympics held when it's going to be hot? Now, you could argue whichever kind of tact you want to take that it's climate change. Okay. Or that it's just the hot time of the summer. And as I've always said, I never, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I was glad that the Olympic Games got held in Atlanta. But the time period they picked, I knew it could be hot. And there were a few days that weren't, but it's just one of those things. Right. And again, you wonder should the Olympic Games, the summer or the winter games, actually be held in those kind of, they hold them, they seem to hold them in the core of, of that season. And does that really make sense in certain cities and locations that they're being held in? Now, you can't plan years in advance on the weather when these games are awarded. And, you know, yeah, they can adjust the time frame maybe to some extent. And I, I would actually speculate even up until maybe a year out as we've proven with COVID or, or let's say two, you could adjust the dates. You know, if, if we were seeing, if we are dealing with a, a climate change need to shift, it's fine. You could adjust them. Okay. But even if in the context of, you know, in thinking about it after the fact, are those the right dates? Okay. And so Given that, it, would it be feasible to do it? Sure. Why don't they? Well, it's the same reason they're scheduled when they are. Okay. It's about money. I hate to say that, but it's true. And it's not. No, no. Don't, don't, don't start reading me saying like somehow that they want the athletes to suffer because it makes good money. It's not what I'm saying. But now that the Olympics, and it's not just because they contain professional athletes now, but the money in sports, and there's a lot of it, is during these big professional seasons. And we have different ones around the globe. But in the U.S., for instance, we have ones that kick off in the end of summer. Okay, And that includes things like American football and includes things. Um, you have baseball going on throughout the season, but it kind of kicks into its playoff run at that time of year. And in Europe and other parts of the world where regular football or soccer is played, that really goes into overdrive, kicking off right around the start of September. Some of the leagues start a little earlier than that. Okay. But even things like cycling, which is really big in the Olympics, has a professional season, and they tweaked it a little bit, but they've got, got these big events, right? And the Tour de France got moved up a little bit this year to adjust for that. But they've kind of got three what they would call their majors, right? That they're these grand tours. And so they happen at certain times of the year. And they can't just completely obliterate that schedule. They've, they've got to account for it. So the reason the Olympics happen when they do is primarily it's about, you know, when it is optimal within the professional money-making, you know, whole schedule that makes sense. It's logical, right? I, I, I get that. I, I'm not opposed to that. Because if you really could choose it and, it, and it's not just about sports as well. It's about you can't necessarily get the money that you want to out of these Olympic Games if you're doing it in the end of summer or fall. We've, we've seen that with some of these when it switches hemispheres and they try to do it. It doesn't exactly play out the same as it does in the core season in the summertime or and, and more probably even more so summer than winter. People can travel during the summer. It's it's when schools have breaks and they can go to the games when you know in the years when we're able to do that stuff. And all of it just plays out differently. 
So how do the athletes deal with that? And that's really what I was kind of, you know, thinking about. So given that athletes have to deal with it, let's just assume for a moment that nothing's going to change on the other side as much as I think it can, all right? And we recognize that athletes are going to have to deal with these extremes. And again, it's both summer and winter. You've got this strong heat, humidity you know, context going on, but even in the Korean Winter Games just a few years ago had extreme cold to, to the point where it warped equipment, right? It actually torqued things that, you know, things got so cold it just wasn't supposed to be that way. So how did they deal with it? And we actually touched on this a little bit, and there's a lot of science behind it in some episodes I did back in May. And there were two different ones. One was about leveraging weather in therapy, like would you actually use weather to to treat your ailments? And the other was talking about this whole adventure tourism. And that was around the time that we had this big um, deadly event in China with a you know an ultra-endurance sort of race that had that major storm that took place. But how do they do it? Because at first glance, you would think, well, this can't be a surprise to them. And it's not, right? Now, for me, and, and I'll give you an example. I was out yesterday, just yesterday, doing a hike. Okay, And weather forecast was, let's say it was 30-ish Celsius and, you know, mid-80s Fahrenheit. But there was enough clouds where I was like, okay, it'll be okay. And when I started the hike, it was good. It's reasonable. And as I got along, there wasn't enough wind, except when I got on kind of some peaks, which I did do. But I could just feel my shirt just drenching, right, <laughs> in sweat. Now, I'm a sweater. Not everybody is to the, to the same level I am. But I know how heat impacts me. However, I don't really have time to think about it in the context. So I tend to pick my events, whatever I'm going to do within that context. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm busy with some work right now, and it's pushed me into training indoors. But one of the reasons I like to train indoors in the summer is I get more consistent performance and I quite frankly avoid the heat. So while I like to get outside and ride my bike or whatever or hike, I have to be careful to look for the windows of opportunity. And they're not always going to present themselves. So I have that flexibility. But athletes aren't going to have that. Okay. So my way of dealing with it is to avoid it truly. Now, if I were trying to become a world-class athlete or even trained to be in, you know, in some, I'm at that age, right, where I can do these master's levels events where being an old guy, I could try it on and try to become, you know, some level, whatever. But even if I were doing that, I don't know if I would train the way I do train or train in these other things, but I would probably incorporate some of these other techniques. And like I said, we talked about one of them. We talked about adventure tourism and one of the things about acclimating. Now we focused on acclimating with the context of altitude. And, you know, I mentioned in my travels, I did some hiking and it was at a slightly higher altitude. It wasn't you know, ridiculous or anything. And I could tell the difference. And, you know, there's opportunity to do that. So even in being in that area that had slightly thing. I did some things that were at higher altitude for a couple of days before I went and did the hike itself, knowing that just being out and active in that environment would help to some extent, or in theory would. But let's get back to the athletes. How do they do it? How do they train? Now, 
put a link in the show notes to a couple of good articles that aren't research articles, but that reference them and that link to them. So this is one of those times when you can do a deep dive if you really want to, because some of the science is truly intriguing on this stuff. Some of it's really fascinating, but let's be clear, they do think about it. And some of them probably have an easier time doing it than others. And it may be one of the things that leads to why certain countries and athletes from certain countries perform better in certain events. Now, some of it's just sheer money thrown at the training apparatus, right? And that's an obvious thing. But certain countries have always performed well in maybe the marathon or other things that involve long distances. But it's not just about you know a body structure or anything like that. It's about the weather that they generally are able to train and that may make them better to do it because they're dealing with these what we what I might call adverse conditions just in their regular weather right and so they're used to it so part of it is a long-term thing part of it is we can acclimate over time and we've discussed this before so I grew up in a cold household the air conditioning was on a lot and I got used to that and later, even now, when I'm around people, you know, I still probably tend towards that cold side. But that said, some of that is worn off. But I will tell you, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when I first started kind of not being in that home environment, people thought I was downright crazy how cold I liked it. Okay, But it was what I was used to. It was what my body was used to. But now I do the other thing, and sometimes I even do it to an extreme to help me acclimate out of that. So there'll be times when I might be a little uncomfortable or I leave the window open a little longer, and I do it to help my body adjust to just being in a warmer climate. And athletes do that too. So athletes may spend years putting themselves in situations or training to sports that favor what their natural conditions are. Because you can overcome it. You can train indoors to a certain thing. But if your body on a daily basis is going back to those things, it's still gonna, it might wash out that, the effect. You might train when it's hotter, but if you live in a colder environment, it may not really help. But if you train in a warm environment and live in a warm environment, your body naturally is just going to be more adapt to dealing with things that it considers normal and our body does change the physiology of our body changes how we sweat how we metabolize all these things change when we're doing that kind of stuff so in an ideal world you train to the sports that are well suited right and hopefully you find one that works well for you but there are other things you can do and some of them are a little more short-term and some of them are very short-term and Say in the context of, and this gets into kind of like acclimatizing for a trip, you can either get to somewhere early, and I remember going to Peru years ago and going to Machu Picchu, which is at a higher elevation, and them even talking about get there a few days early and let your body adjust to being at elevation. There are enough kind of intermediate points you can go to where it provides an opportunity for your body just to be, like I was saying, used to being outside in an elevation and you could do the same thing with heat and I remember a, a trip that I took to you know an island in the Caribbeans one time I got there and the first couple of days I kind of just you know I, I did a little bit of chill but I also part of that was just letting my body 
get used to it. So I did less of the air conditioning, maybe still used a fan, but just let my body warm up so that the rest of the time when I was going to be doing stuff that was a little more active, that my body was, was generally okay with it. And athletes do that too, right? And what they've proven in some of the research is that ideally, if you're going to try to acclimatize, you would have it two plus weeks to do it, right? And again, this isn't the same as long-term change in your body, but your body does start to do those same things with how you sweat, how you metabolize, all those sort of things, how it stores heat, right? In just a few weeks, but you can achieve the good percentage of that somewhere around the 75% range just in a few days. Now, not everybody has that luxury, right? Not every country or even every time you take a vacation can you give it an extra four to six days that you're in that country, that you're training to that, right? And you may even find that, oh, I don't want to train to that because it's throwing me off my schedule, whatever it is, okay? So that's a reality of the situation. So is there anything more short-term you can do, truly short-term? And the answer is yes. So what we're learning are a few things. One is we're you know, let's look outside our natural body, the, just the clothes that athletes wear. And we've talked about the, the clothing elements before they're becoming, they're incorporating different technologies and it's all designed. And, and this is particularly true, probably in the winter games of making sure in those key areas. So, you know, biathlon is an event where they do shooting with it as well. And you got to be dead on, right? So making sure you get really good blood circulation to your hands in those cold environments Again, the clothes are adapting. The technology is adapting to, to work with that. But, but there's also things you can do with your body. And that was what I found interesting in reading these articles is you can do it both ways. For instance, if you're in a cold environment, all right, you might do things. It, it, most of it focuses around raising or lowering your core temperature. And you can do this safely within a context. But I, I'll give you an idea. Hypothermia is when your body gets really cold, right? And it takes a long time. If you ever watch these things where someone gets really cold and how long it takes to warm the body back up, well, you leverage that. Because that can make a huge difference in how you perform. And if you think about it that way, right? If it takes hours for your body to warm up, even under, you know, you put it in blankets or whatever else when you're trying to raise the temperature, you can do the same thing for an athlete. And doing things like taking ice baths, ice baths, excuse me, or wearing an ice vest. I saw an athlete doing this in the background in the train, one of the training rooms. They had this big white vest on that was ice vest. Cyclists do it with things that they stick down their back, right? One of those areas where around the neck, and you, and you probably noticed this, we have places on the neck and on the wrist where your main veins and arteries get very close to the surface. And they're trying to dissipate some of that heat, but if you chill them off with cold, it takes that cold back and it circulates it in your body and it can, you can take advantage of that. So we have these points that are ideal for placement of these things, but you can all just fundamentally just immerse your body, right? In cold or the reverse doing saunas or hot baths, right? But I was reading an article about a runner said, I can't believe people, more people don't do ice baths because they had some event. I think it was in Canada some endurance event, I don't know if it was a marathon or a triathlon or whatever else, that like half the people didn't even finish. And of the half that did, the vast majority, or, or no, I shouldn't say the vast majority, some large percentage used I, the ice bath technique to lower their core temperature before they went out 
and performed in this event. Now, of course, there's probably going to be caveats, and I didn't look into this specifically, but where you have to make sure that you don't, you chill your core, which you want to do, but then you've got to still go in and warm up your muscles. And that's a tricky balance, right? But even if you get kind of half the benefit of being cold and, and the proper benefit of warming up your muscles, you may outperform not only in the context of what you're doing, but to what you're used to. And that's what some of the science is unfolding is some of the th these things tell us about when we're better at burning, you know, a certain type of sugars. And, and that was, I found it interesting, the colder we are, the we metabolize differently in terms of our glycemic index and things like that. So there's just, this thing unfolds a whole world of possibilities, not just for these athletes. And that's the beauty of this stuff is we always push the envelope with the extremes, right? It's like the new adopter thing with technologies. So those people pushing the envelope, those will come back into everyday Joe exercisers like me and find easier ways. But I've been even talking about it. I'm, I'm looking at doing a couple bike races this fall. Races is a strong term, but things that I've not done before. And I'm already thinking about, thankfully, it's going to be hopefully at a cooler time of year, but looking at things like ice vest and other ways to cool that I've never thought about before. And the reason I'm thinking about it is I know how prone I am to overheating and the impacts it causes for me. I don't know. It's kind of interesting, Wild. Let me know what you think. I, I, I'd be curious to know if any of you have adopted these technologies or if you tried technology, it doesn't even have to be in training, that you find work for you in both a maybe a medium term, not this lifetime thing, but a medium term and a very brief term attempt to acclimatize to a certain situation. I'd like to know. What is about the weather at gmail.com? You can find me on Twitter there, of course, or Mark underscore Jelanik on Twitter. And in the meantime, all right, when you're popping on the Olympic Games or you're seeing some goofy ad for some thing called an ice vest, just remember, there's much more to weather than the weather itself.